It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. It has been 60 years since Vatican II solemnly opened in Rome. It was a major overhaul, or I guess it was, of the global Catholic Church. Out of years of talks, prayers, and debates, church bishops, hierarchy, and the Pope produced 16 documents representing I don't know if it's big changes or clarifications in the Catholic Church, but what was the real effect of Vatican II? That's really the question. Um, Was it even necessary? Or was it the Church acquiescing to a culture driven by the sexual revolution and its various effects of free thinking and hyper-individualism? Well, one who knows is uber-Vaticanista, an expert on all things Catholic, George Weigel. He's the distinguished senior fellow of Washington's Ethics and Public Policy Center. And his new book explores the hard questions of Vatican II. And the book is called To Sanctify the World, The Vital Legacy of Vatican II. And George joins me now. Welcome, George. Thanks, Lauren. Good to be with you again. Well, it's great because, you know, I don't think a lot of people understand what Vatican II was and what it was supposed to do. But before I before we get to that question, you know, I just got back from Rome. I was on a journalist seminar covering the Holy See. Um, and one thing I, I guess I'd forgotten in being a Christian and, and in really in the stories that I cover on the Pope and, and, and the Holy See and the Vatican. Um, and that is the purpose of the Catholic Church is the salvation of souls. And it struck me that with all its power and influence, influence, very few of us will actually remember when we see the Holy See's presence at the United Nations or the nunciatures in Washington, D.C. or around the world, or, or when Pope Francis makes a statement. But Vatican II, was it designed to with that focus in mind? That was the entire purpose of Vatican II, Lauren, and that gets us to one of the great misunderstandings of the Council that I hope this book helps correct. Vatican II was far more about sanctifying the world, or if you will, Christifying the world, than it was about reinventing the Catholic Church. Uh, The Catholic Church does not reinvent itself every time it holds an ecumenical council. The council Mm -hmm. is not a constituent assembly. It's not a constitutional convention. It's an effort by the church. There have only been 21 of these in 2000 years to deepen the church's own self-understanding so that it can better live out the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. There's a difference here that's really worth noting. Uh, The previous 20 ecumenical councils uh, were uh, summoned to deal with a crisis inside the church a church-dividing crisis. The first ecumenical council, Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, was summoned really by the emperor Constantine to stop the church from self-destructing over the question, who is Jesus Christ and what is his relationship to God the Father? Mm -hmm. Um, 
that was dividing the church. That question was dividing the church, and it got settled at the First Council of Nicaea. Uh, and the next 19 uh, councils dealt with similar church-dividing questions. Vatican II was summoned by Pope John XXIII to deal with a civilizational crisis. Mm-hmm. The world was destroying itself. In the first 60 years of the 20th century, there had been two world wars, 80 million people killed, oceans of blood, mountains of corpses, three totalitarian systems, the greatest persecution of the church in history. This was a genuine civilizational crisis. The world had gone off the rails, and the church had to say something to that. The church had to analyze what was the source of that crisis and what it could bring to a resolution of it. That's what Vatican II was summoned to do. And in the retrospect of 60 years, that's what the council did. Mm-hmm. We can discuss how it did that. But that was the purpose of Vatican II, to sanctify the world, not reinvent the church. But that, but that was what got misunderstood. I mean, so many people thought it was... Um, you know, it was to liberalize the church. And so many people kind of created their own sort of Vatican, personal Vatican too, thinking that, well, since the church is doing that there, I can do this here. I mean, is it, am I right in thinking that that's what happened? You're right in thinking, Lauren, that that's what the media latched onto. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the very beginning of the council, uh, it this notion that you can divide everything Catholic into liberal and conservative, mm-hmm. progressive and traditionalist, um, got deeply set in journalistic concrete and has remained virtually unmovable ever since. But it's the wrong set of images. The church, Christianity, not just the Catholic church, Christianity, biblical religion, is about good and bad, true and false, noble and base, righteous living and lousy living. <laughs> it's not about left and right. Um, so that's that's been a fundamental problem in, in interpreting the council. Now, it is true that the church in the early 1960s and the person of Pope John XXIII understood that it was in need of a development of its own self-understanding and of its way of proclaiming the gospel to deal with this civilizational crisis uh, that I just described, Mm -hmm. which was the result of the world becoming, as John Henry Newman put it in the 19th century, simply irreligious. I mean, the the church knows how to deal with paganism. Church knows how to deal with false gods. Right, right, right. Been doing that for a long time. But a world that is simply irreligious, a claustrophobic world with no windows, doors, or skylights, that was something new. And a deep reflection on how to proclaim Christ and the gospel under those circumstances was necessary. And that's why the council was necessary. John XXIII wanted Vatican II to be a new experience of Pentecost, a new experience of the Christocentric fervor of faith 
that led the first disciples to go out and in 250 years convert somewhere between a third and a half of the Mediterranean world, which is pretty good work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Ragtag bunch of nobodies coming out of the east end of nowhere. Um, That was the point of the council. But did it accomplish any of that? Because some people can say, oh, the only thing I can see that came out of Vatican II was, you know, the Latin mass. Like, well, that big change there. Um, so people need, people need to broaden the lens of their perception of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, there are something on the order, uh, there are hundreds of millions of new Catholics in sub-Saharan Africa today. Mm-hmm. This would not have happened without the Second Vatican Council. It would not have happened without the church embracing a native clergy in those recently decolonized countries. It wouldn't have happened without the church detaching itself from European colonialism. And it wouldn't have happened without the church rediscovering itself as a missionary enterprise. That's a huge success story of Vatican II, rightly understood. Yeah, The living parts of the world church here in North America are those that have embraced this idea that Catholicism is not about maintaining institutions. It's about turning those institutions into launch platforms for mission and evangelization. The dying parts of the world church, look particularly at Western Europe, especially at Germany, are the parts that have misunderstood Vatican II as an uncritical embrace of secular modernity, to which they respond by what I've called before on your program, Catholic light. Yeah. And just as in the famous soft drink, Catholic light inevitably leads to Catholic zero. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what we're seeing in Western Europe today. But that's a fundamental misconstrual of the council. You you have a quote there from Henri de Lebas, which I think was just so powerful when he's dealing with atheism. And I think you could look at that as secularism because because even people who think they're either religious or Christian or whatever kind of live their lives as if they aren't. Um, there's more of a secular worldview rather than a Christian worldview. But he said, you know, that rejection of the biblical view of humanity, its origins and its destiny had the gravest historical consequences. It is not true, as is sometimes said, that man can cannot organize the world without God. Saying, you know, it's not true that man can, you know, can't do anything without God. He says, but what is true is that without God, he can only organize it against man. Exclusive humanism is inhuman humanism. And maybe it's a, it, 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 it might seem a little complicated for me reading it, but the idea is that there's, there's, there's subtle differences between when you follow the path of secularism, when you follow the path of a, of a culture that's based on individualism, and when you follow the path of a God who, ha- who is your authority. Uh, we don't always see that because we have agency as well to make decisions for ourselves, you know? So De Lubach wrote that in the middle of the Second World War when he was deeply involved in the French resistance to the Nazi occupation of, of France. And uh, he looked at all of that mess of the 20th century and 
came to the same conclusion that Alexander Solzhenitsyn would articulate in his Templeton Prize lecture some 30 years later, all of this mess happened because we've forgotten God. Yeah. And we forgot when we lose God, we lose us. This is the point. We lose us at the same time. And as de Lubach said, and you rightly quoted, uh, it's not true that people can't organize the world without God. They can't. But they can only organize it as a circular firing squad. And 80 million dead bodies should have should have proved uh, the point, although we're still arguing uh, the point today. Um, John the 23rd had an intuition mm -hmm. that would be fleshed out by a young bishop at Vatican II named Carol Wojtyla, mm -hmm. who would later become Pope John Paul II. And that intuition was that I'm glad you brought up the term. Western humanism had gone off the rails by becoming solipsistic and self-referential. Yeah. And it was the task of the church in those circumstances not to condemn humanism, but to proclaim an authentically Christian humanism, which the council did in its pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, in words that I believe were probably written by Carol Wojtyla, later John Paul II, that Jesus Christ reveals both the face of the Father of mercies, God the Father, the Father who calls the prodigals home, and the truth about us. So when we meet the Lord Jesus, we meet the truth about God and the truth about us, and out of that encounter can come an authentic humanism that ennobles us, that proclaims that we have a noble destiny. We're not all just going to turn into compost, as they're doing out in California these days. Uh, we have a noble destiny, and that destiny is eternal life, uh, with the creator and redeemer of all that is. That's a pretty good offer. It's a lot more compelling an offer, it seems to me, than, than a lot of other offers available in the world today. And the council was summoned, Vatican II was summoned to help make that offer plausible, credible, attractive, through both the proclamation of the church and the way the church lived its own life. Yeah, well, we're going to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast, and we'll be back talking about some of those 16 documents that came out of Vatican II and what effect they've had, and some of the most important ones uh, that uh, we should be looking at right now. We'll be right back. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services. Marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now, you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. 
With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com, or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. And we're back with George Weigel, whose new book um, is, I guess, celebrating uh, the 60th anniversary of Vatican II. Um, It is called um, To Sanctify the World. And I think that's a good reminder that this was what it's all about. That's the short answer to the question, what was the Vatican II about? To sanctify the world. Um, Out of that came 16 documents. Um, I can read them all, but I think what we want to know is, George, what, in your opinion, probably is the most important top three of those documents that came out of, of, of Vatican II? The documents themselves, Lauren, by their titles, uh, tell us that they're not all equal in weight, in heft, Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. gravity. The highest form of conciliar teaching is a dogmatic constitution. That's the title. And there were two of those at Vatican II. One was called the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, Dei Verbum in Latin, the Word of God. Mm -hmm. Mm. And uh, the second was the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church, whose Latin title, Lumen Gentium, refers to Christ as the light of the nations. These are the two foundation stones on which everything else at Vatican II was built. So you have to read all of the other documents in the council through the prism of those two dogmatic constitutions. Hmm. Now, what did they say? Uh, The first one, dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, which I believe is first among equals in those two, uh, tells us God does speak and has spoken into the world. It's not called Dei Verbum, the Word of God, for nothing. (laughs) It's a robust affirmation that God has spoken into the world, first through the people of Israel, later through his incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, and God continues to speak into the world through the body of Christ, the Church, extending Christ's mission through history. So, That's important stuff because it uh, tells us uh, we don't live in a world of silence. We don't live in that claustrophobic world of no windows, doors, or skylights. Uh, We live in a world open to a larger reality than the one we perceive through our senses. Uh, So, Dei Verbum, the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, is a robust defense of the reality of divine revelation through biblical religion. 
we're not alone. We have been shown a path, the path into the future. Lumen Gentium, uh, the dogmatic constitution on the church, by beginning with those words, says Jesus Christ is the light of the nations. Therefore, Jesus Christ is the center of the church. Christ is at the center of everything. And the church exists to extend the saving mission of Christ, who reveals both the truth about God and the truth about us uh, throughout history. And it does that both by proclaiming the gospel and by living it, by witnessing to it, by providing an example of what authentic human community looks like. doesn't look like the dictatorship of the proletariat. It doesn't look like German National Socialism and its racial, ethnic sense of community. The truly authentic human community is revealed in the body of Christ that is the church, which transcends all the normal divisions of of humanity. So those are the two foundation blocks. Everything else is built on top of that. Now, who... Did a collection of bishops actually write the documents, um, or was it one person writing them and then others contribute? These documents were the result, in the case of Lumen Gentium, of three years of discussion, redrafting, further discussion and debate, more redrafting. In the case of the Dogmatic Constitution on Divine Revelation, it took four years Mm. to do this, in which Certainly bishops were involved. They're the ones who form the body of the council, which, by the way, this is an interesting point. The Second Vatican Council was the largest legislative body in human history with real legislative authority. Nothing this big had ever happened before. 2,500 bishops authoritatively legislate. Now, those bishops had theologians with them, largely academics as advisors. One of the most important of those, particularly for the dogmatic constitution of divine revelation, was a young Bavarian in his early (laughs) 30s named Joseph Joseph Ratzinger. I think you once played the piano. Yes. And uh, in his later (laughs) instantiation as Pope Benedict XVI. Ratzinger was one of the three most important minds at the Second Vatican Council. This is something Uh, that I don't think people understand. This legacy that is handed down from you know, the papal offices and the people who are part of that process. I mean, obviously, you know, you know, Cardinal Ratzinger was, you know, director of the um, uh, the CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And and he was just instrumental, really kind of in guiding Vatican II, even after Vatican II. Um, but I want to talk about that legacy because there's something happening here. You've got, um, you know, Carol Wojtyla and Joseph Ratzinger at Vatican II. You've got them both becoming um, bishops of Rome popes afterwards. The first pope now, Pope Francis, is becomes a priest, isn't he, after Vatican II, right? I think he was ordained just as the council was ending. Right, right. And in some sense, he was formed in the turbulence 
after the council. So he's in some sense the pope of the council. The pope after Pope Francis will be the first truly post-conciliar pope. Um, uh, but let's get back to John Paul II and Benedict XVI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, every other council, the previous 20, had given you a key to its authentic interpretation. Nicaea wrote the creed that Christians still recite on Sundays. That's how you know what that was about. Yeah. Uh, other councils did dogmatic definitions or condemned heresies or put canons into the law of the church. Trent did all of that. Council of Trent did all of that and wrote a catechism. Vatican II did none of that. So the documents do not contain in themselves the key to their authoritative and authentic interpretation. Those keys were provided by these two men of the council, John Paul II and Benedict XVI, in what I regard as a one continuous 35-year arc of interpreting Vatican II from 1978 to, to 2013. Mm. And I describe in the third part of this book exactly how they did that and why they came up, how they came up with the master key to all the rest of the keys, which is the concept that the church is a communion of disciples in mission. That's, that's if you want to vary the image, that's the bright thread that ties together these 16 documents, 16 pieces of cloth, if you will, into a beautiful tapestry. And they gave us that. And I think both of them understood their pontificates as dedicated to the authentic interpretation and implementation of the Second Vatican Council. Mm. But now we have Pope Francis, and he is a bit divergent from um, John Paul II and Benedict XVI. Um, and he's got to feel the weight of that, especially when Benedict XVI is actually at, you know, on Vatican property. Um, uh, but also, Pope Francis is called the Senate and Senatality. And uh, at this seminar, the um, the uh, the clergy member, I forgot his name, uh, who was heading it up, spoke to us. And it was this big presentation. I mean, they had a, a, a video, uh, they have a press person, and it's about creating these conversations on the parish member level and then you know what's wrong with the church or what do you like about the church what do you, you know and all of the, and then going to the bishops and the bishops then talk about this or their priests and they talk to the bishops and then it goes up and up and up and then they bring that and they're bringing that to rome and you know my question to this this the man who's heading this is that you know listen people have written entire books just on the holy spirit and so I'm wondering how you can trust what somebody says who on a parish level with actually changing church policy or even doctrinally um, change it somehow. Um, and his response was, you know, people can feel the Holy Spirit. They know when the Holy Spirit is there. It's like, I I'm not sure if people drenched in secular thinking and a secular worldview understands the difference between the Holy Spirit and their own feelings. And I'm just wondering if this synod kind of deal is um, really dangerous. What, what, what do you think? 
I don't know whether it's dangerous, Lauren. I think it's a huge waste of time, frankly. And it's creating a, a false image of the church. Um, I have read the national reports of, I don't know, half a dozen countries, including the United States, which have been sent to Rome, allegedly reflecting the themes and these discussions beginning at the parish level. In each case, they involve 1% of the Catholic population of the country. I mean, I'm sorry, that is just not a serious reflection of a national ecclesiastical reality. Um, secondly, as a friend of mine, a priest here in the Washington, D.C. area said years ago, our people want to be led. They don't want to be asked. <laughs> you know, in, in this world, as confused and messed up as it is, they're looking for the gospel preached without compromise, with compassion, to be sure. Right. But without compromise, what are we sitting around here talking about what is the gospel? We know what the gospel is, or we should. And as I have said, you know, Pope Francis has said many times he dreams of a church permanently in mission. But I've written at least three columns in which I have said a church permanently in mission cannot be a church permanently in meetings. <laughs> These things are... <laughs> are mutually exclusive because we live in time, and there's a finite amount of it. And every minute you spend fretting over what is the church when Vatican II gave you the answer, uh, is time taken away from mission? Yeah. So I think this is all a bit of a confusion, and um, I'm not sure it's really going anywhere. Well, I also wonder if Pope Francis understands people. He, I think he understands political discourse. He understands the idea of discernment between bishops sitting around and praying together. I think he understands that. It's a sermon, individual discernment as well. I don't think he understands the people, what's happening in the Western church as well as he should. I mean, the visit, he visits Kazakhstan, which is a church, which is a country that has less than 1% Catholic. Um, he's going to Bahrain. Um, he's going to places uh, that you know, certainly welcome him, but he would be he would do much better, I think, to visit places where Catholicism and Christianity uh, are being so um, influenced by a secular worldview. That's where it needs that. That's where the shoring up needs to be happening, and then those people can start spreading the gospel message and you know the Great Commission and all of that. Uh, this whole visit to Kazakhstan. I mean, I'm wondering, what do you see the purpose of that? Uh, I don't know. I If I were the Pope, I'd be going to Germany, uh, where there is a synodal process that seems bound and determined to turn German Catholicism into a variant of liberal Protestantism, uh, or if you prefer, a church of woke. Uh, <laughs> now, why anybody would want to do this? These are not stupid people. These are very intelligent people many of them highly educated. But why do you want to imitate the single most failed form of Christian expression in the last 200 years? Liberal Protestantism is a complete failure everywhere. So why do we want to do that? This just doesn't make sense. 
I, if I were the Pope, uh, I would be going to Germany and saying, I'm sorry, you are not authorized to say we know better than God when it comes to the requisites of righteous living, the nature of human love, the structure of the church. God knows better than we do. And yeah. you guys are acting as if you know better than God does. And that's wrong. Yeah, well, you know, that's, I mean, I think Benedict and and, and Jean-Paul too probably, you know, were that kind of voice. Uh, Pope Francis, I'm not quite sure what uh, what he's trying to do, um, but I want to um, get your final thoughts on Vatican II and how it's really influencing or not influencing us today, um, because I think it's an important document. I think it's an important uh, period to, 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 to get yourself reacquainted with because it really shows that the church has the authority and he, and the authority of the church is pushing up against the autonomy of millions of people who want to do it their way and not the church's way. So you, just your last thoughts on, on, on Vatican II and what you'd like to leave people with. Uh, Vatican II was a great gift to the Holy Spirit to not only the Catholic Church, but I believe the entire Christian movement. It was a robust affirmation of the essential truths of Christian faith. And it said, in many variations on a single theme, I did it my way is not the path to human happiness, human flourishing, or ultimately to beatitude. We've been given the way and the model in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if we learn from that, we're going to both lead more fulfilled lives ourselves, and we're going to build more authentic and humane societies. That That's what Vatican II said, and that message is every bit as urgent today as it was in the early 1960s. George Weingel, thank you so much. The book is called To Sanctify the World. Um, it is a vital book today um, when we're looking at the 60th anniversary of the opening of Vatican II. George Weingel, thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Thanks, Lauren. Good to be with you always. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a blessed day. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.